This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Let me ask you to close your eyes, cast your mind back to 1913, a year when many say it all fell apart. The generally understood policy of segregation at the time was given greater weight with the promulgation of the Land Act in June of 1913. The new law created the legal framework that would carve up the Republic into areas of white ownership surrounded by what's termed a cluster of impoverished black homelands. As Franz Fanon once said, land is dehumanizing. And these were the beginnings of a program of separate development along racial, ethnic and tribal lines that would then be defined by a more crude system 35 years later. But it was 1913 when the systemic disenfranchisement of a landed indigenous class began. We're going back in time to understand a little bit about the land question and why it remains such a contentious issue today and why land is seen as really the key that would unlock a new kind of economic freedom in South Africa, a country whose economy is really underperforming. And in this conversation, we're trying to look at the ways in which um, growth opportunity can be catalyzed. In this conversation, for a brief while, uh, Professor Sipo Sieme, who's a political analyst, we know that Professor uh, Siepe has to uh, take his leave shortly. Professor Sipo Siepe, thank you very much for your time. And then taking the, const- the conversation forward is none other than the constitutional law expert advocate Tembeka Ngukai Torbi, uh, who's also written a book about this issue. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us on Power Talk and school us, as it were. So let's start with you, Professor Siebe. Um, why land? I mean, you wrote such a fantastic op-ed about two weeks ago in the uh, Sunday Independent in which you mentioned this issue that, in you know, amongst a broad range of considerations, land is also at the heartbeat of the critical thinking that's needed about where South Africa finds itself and where it could go. Well, I think, uh, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And uh, you have uh, uh, the advocate uh, who has uh, worked on this and has actually written extensively and has also said as a judge in this area. So you've got the, the right person to deal with this issue. And he has also advised on uh, how we can actually go forward. But the first thing that we need to deal with are the optics. Uh, for anybody who goes to any country, you'll expect that the majority of the people represented in terms of land tenure will uh, be reflected in terms of demographics. Mm. As we speak today, the African majority, who are the <clears throat> descendants of the forebears of this country, still occupy a very minuscule uh, percentage in the country of their birth. Mm-hmm. And we are not any. We are not far from what uh, 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 the Sopaki described as that an African woke up one morning to find that he, he has become a pariah in the land of his birth. Mm-hmm. So this reality exists today, and we've seen the mushrooming of shacks uh, and uh, of uh, squatter camps. And that mushrooming is simply an expression of land hunger. And uh, 
you often find that when you go to in terms of development, most of our people build the shacks not because they want to live in shacks. Mm. They build in a shack because the conditions there are precarious. They can be removed and raised at any other time. That's why they are squatting in that space. But when you go to places where people have a sense of ownership of land, you see them building very decent houses because they have a sense of ownership. Mm. So ownership of land gives you dignity. Mm. It takes you away from the condition of being a shared dweller. Mm. So that is the reality of the African majority. And when the struggle started, uh, when you read people like Mandela, they talk about the land dispossession. Mm. They talk about, he talks about that during my lifetime, I've dedicated myself to this African struggle, which is an mm. anti-colonial struggle. And within the African, this anti-colonial struggle, struggle land that is, the land is at the center. Yeah. So what we had hoped is that uh, post 1994, the democratic dispensation was going to assist us to mm. move speedily into addressing this historical injustice. But every day we are reminded of this historical injustice. This is why whenever you have floods like we have seen, whenever you have uh, fires, Mm. you find our people who are in squatter camps mostly affected. So we can't be proud enough. And it does. this is not even a matter of even the ANC, the PAC, Mm. the BCM. It is about the African condition. So if we really want to move forward, and if we want to move forward peacefully, we need to address Mm. this clearing, the optics every day. And we know, as a matter of fact, as uh, Martin Luther King and others have said, that those who make peaceful evolution impossible make violent revolutions inevitable. Okay. So we have a chance to begin to say, can we talk honestly about uh, the reforms that we've undertaken? Mm. Okay, let's, 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 let's attempt to do that. Let's talk honestly about the reforms that are needed, but still with a historical perspective. So if, from all you've said, land is dignity and land with tenure is security. Advocate Ngokai Tobi, let's bring you into the conversation. Land as the bedrock of this democracy and the bedrock of this economy. What are your views? Um, thank you for the invitation and uh, also... Uh, I want to uh, special pay tribute to Professor Siepe, who is my court discussant. Uh, um, so, so land manifestly is I mean, important uh, to the economy. Um, factories are established on ground. Um, people live on ground. Uh, cattle feed on ground. So, as an economic asset, it's central to the sustainability of uh, society. But land is also a symbol. Um, and often when we say land, what, what we really mean is we, we use it as a vector uh, to a range of other um, considerations. Uh, so it, it's also a symbol for belonging. Uh, and that is a, a historical issue. Uh, the, the, the prime target of the colonists after slavery, I mean, the, when the colonists first came to Africa, they, they really were looking for slaves. They took many, many of them. 
But after slavery, the prime target of the colonists, those who decided to settle in, in Africa and Asia, was land. Um, so the, the symbolism of the land discussion is the reversal of the colonial project mm-hmm. and the affirmation of the citizenship of African people in the land of their birth. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the key outcomes of the colonial project was the denial of citizenship. And you see this plainly in the 1910 uh, agreement between the, the British mm-hmm. and, the, and the Boers. And that's manifested in 1913. Because you are a non-citizen, you have no right to land ownership. Um, and your land ownership is controlled by your own uh, colonizers and occupiers. So that's one symbolic question about land, which is the, 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 the citizenship issue. Mm-hmm. And the Freedom Charter actually attempted to uh, negate this denial of citizenship by proclaiming that uh, uh, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. Yeah. But the question was, does it really belong to all who live in it when 87% have no access to land? So, so that negation and the promise of the Freedom Charter is still um, uh, not yet achievable. Right. There is another symbolic feature of, of land, which is beyond the economic and the political, which is in the spiritual uh, real, and we speak very little about it, but African people have always seen themselves as interconnected to the land. They thought they came from the land, and they thought when they die, they go back to the land. Yeah. So that spiritual interconnectedness interconnect- is also mm-hmm. another crucial symbol of land. Okay. I, I like what you're saying. So we've heard about um, dignity, security, and identity, is that when you strip people of their right to belong to a certain land, then you strip them of their identity and their links to their culture and their heritage. Still staying with a little bit of a historical lesson, uh, Professor Siepe. Prior to 1913, there was a class of black landowners, uh, both as sole proprietors and those who were chiefs overseeing communal lands. Um, how has that changed the idea of black ownership of lands because you know there are many dimensions to the land question but this seems to be one of the uh, to that spirituality this seems to be one of the most sentimental is that you're you know people are talking as if black people never owned the land yeah i mean the the, the very mere or the mere fact that over the years We've had uh, legislation that tended to deprive people of land. We have had forced removals indicate that uh, the people did own land. And also, black people have always been farmers. The notion of agricultural capabilities has always been there. It may not have been on the industrial scale. But that is not only true with Africans. It's true with all other countries all over the world. The the notion of... uh, Agriculture on the industrial scale is something that happened as society developed. So our people have always wanted to have to be farmers. And those who could afford, of course, did go and buy land and they became farmers and all that. But it doesn't address the bigger issue, the systemic dispossession. Mm. And this is where people make a mistake that we have tended to reduce even apartheid as a... Acts that uh, affected uh, certain individuals. 
Yeah. When, in effect, we've always understood that when we talk about apartheid, when we talk about the colonialism, you're talking about the system that affected the majority of mm. our people. So what would have developed as normal in any society was disrupted by yeah. the process of colonialization and also okay. other forms of uh, uh, suppression and oppression of right. African people. So when we move forward and come up with land reform, uh, it must also be systemic. It cannot be about addressing a few individuals. And of course, there are a few areas that uh, the post-1904 government wanted to address immediately. Yeah. And it had more with the fact that uh, there are some things, some areas that people know where it is very easy to say, not so long ago, people were removed from here. Yeah. And we can, when we talk about the reclamation of land, we can say we can prove that our people and ancestors lived here. So there was going to be, of course, a process that was necessary to be able to deal with this. But uh, what we know now is that with all its intention, the land reform in South Africa has not seen has not moved us where we had expected us to be. Right. And this is where we must address okay. ourselves, whether it is at the level of the conceptualization of the program or whether it is a just sheer incompetence <laughs> in terms by government. Right. So, but the, what we know is that more of the same will not work. So we need to find other mechanisms. But the most importantly, it is important that we address this in a systemic and yeah. systematic way. Let me bring in the advocate and fast forward now. Um, Post-apartheid, we know that there is a moral imperative to address the land issue for all the historical reasons that have been presented by yourself and Professor Siepe. But what about the economic rationale for pursuing the land question? When we're now looking at it purely as an economic argument, how do you go about fixing the question so that land becomes a cornerstone of the economy that South Africa needs to have? Yeah, I know that the people basically opposed to land reform, let's call a spade a spade. I know people opposed to land reform usually say that you are going to destroy the economy um, if you embark on a wide-ranging land reform uh, agenda. But the problem is the following. In my most recent book, uh, Land Matters, Mm -hmm. I traced the statistics from 1994 of land ownership in agriculture. Mm. At that point, the agriculturally productive farmland in South Africa was owned, I think, at uh, 81% owned by 60,000 white families. Mm -hmm. Uh, 60,000 white families owned 81% of agriculturally productive land. Mm. And I looked at the statistics released by the Director General of Land Affairs, Dushabane, uh, in 2017. Yeah. It showed that 72% of agriculturally productive land was owned by white people, 72%. Yeah. That means a marginal shift in 25 years, a marginal shift of 7%. Now, I mean... So, so, so the market has dominated, and white landowners have dominated 
But there hasn't been a radical economic development founded on land. So, so this threat that if you distribute land, you're going to destroy the economy, the fact is that land has not been distributed. Yeah. It's still held by the same people who held it in 1994. Yeah. But we do not see any economic growth consequence upon this concentration of land in a few white hands. Mm-hmm. So which means this is a scarecrow. It is truly a scarecrow. Can I throw a curveball at you? What about the people, you know, uh, the advocate has said that, you know, historically Africans, indigenous Africans were farmers and they were dispossessed and so denied the opportunity to be self-sufficient as landowners and farmers. What about people who look at the situation now and say South Africa has one of the highest urbanization rates in the world. People are leaving the rural areas for the city and if you hand back the land, it will lie fallow because the modern day black African doesn't want to be a farmer and hence agriculture is just 2.5% of GDP because actually people don't want the land to farm and we're harping on sentimentally about an issue that isn't going to transform the economy at all because the land use that we think is there uh, the, the land use purported is not going to be the reason why the land um, should be and would be distributed in the first place Yes, no, I, I hear that a lot as well when I go to speak, uh, especially in uh, white, affluent uh, areas. Yeah. That's what they, they argue. You know, in, I think in 2019, I went to speak at Stellenbosch. Mm. Um, one of the, the uh, people on the podium made the same argument. And they said, look, I've got land, etc. It's lying fallow. I'm not using it. So I said, why don't you donate it to me? <laughs> and that's, that, that, that was the end of the conversation. I mean, if they truly believe that land is so useless, why don't they just give it up? Yeah. So that's the first problem. There is a hypocrisy in the argument because the hypocrisy is intended to justify the continuing holding, not the distribution, mm-hmm. but the continuing holding of the land. Okay. The second problem, of course, is the obvious one, which is that the, 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 in fact, I looked at these statistics again. The, it's the World Bank report, uh, the report that came in 2019. There's another one that came this year. But the 2019 report says that since 1994, we've had a 61% urban migration. Yeah. So clearly the rural areas are being deserted at a fast pace. But yeah. Uh, which, which rural areas are being deserted? These are the native reserves that were converted into Bantu stands, mm. which were designed after 1913 deliberately. And again, the reports are there. You can find mm. the reports mm. and check for yourself. Why did the whites decide that blacks must go to which specific reserves? How did they choose the trans guy? How did they choose Boputatswana? How did they choose Venda? How did they, you know, why did they not say that the native reserve must be Pretoria, or the native reserve must be Johannesburg, yeah. or the native reserve must be Cape Town? So the science behind this, this was not a, an odd choice. The science behind the selection of the so-called homeless yeah. was agricultural productivity. Deliberate. It was studying the rain patterns. That is how they chose them. Yeah. So... So the true answer to this is, is this. When there is such a huge urban migration, the people that come to the cities still need land. Yeah. 
There is just never an answer to the problem of landlessness. When your population grows, you need land. When you have urban migration, you need land. land. Yeah, and, and, and the professor has said so as well. We're having a conversation with Professor Sipo Siepe, who will be leaving us shortly, and Advocate Tembagan Mugai Tobi. And the question is, why is land still seen as the catalyst to a new kind of South African economy? And it's not just agricultural land, it's urban land. The whole land question on Power Talk. Thought-provoking conversations with Liratombele, 9 a.m. to midday. And those really probing and getting us to think beyond the convention, beyond the emotional, Professor Sipo Siepe and advocate Tembegangu Gaitobi were talking about land and whether land is really the catalyst, the driver of an economic revolution in South Africa. We were told earlier on, this is not ideological. This is not about what one political party or the other says. This is about understanding the essence of how the South African economy works. Land is dignity, it's security. It gives you a sense of belonging. And the inability to fast track land reform (laughs) the suggestion was either it's a conceptual problem or it's a problem of incompetence in the implementation we've also been given the figures as to who actually owns the land Uh, a national uh, audit shows that um, the minority of the population has about 70 owns about 75 percent of the land 15 percent is in the hands of indian and coloreds and four percent is in the hands of blacks and when we look at that big figure of 75 percent we're told that it's fewer than uh 80 000 families or just more than 60 000 families that actually own the bulk of arable land in the country i have a question for you uh professor siepe it is coming through from um, social media. T fifty T fifty one says, "I have a question to the guests. What about the roads which are owned by the taxi industry? Every time we discuss land, we discuss mainly white owned land. However, the taxi industry or those taxi bosses have owned the land and in brackets the roads adjacent to them, and they've made billions from it. And these are black owners." Yeah, I, I think. Um we must be very careful about uh, people throwing false arguments. The roads are not owned by the taxes. The fact that they're used by the taxes uh, more often, it's uh, something else. And they're used also to to ferry people who are largely African in that. So it's part, the land is part of that. It's part of that uh, economic transaction that people are engaged in. So we can deal with the taxi industry aside. But let's uh, go back to the bigger issues, because some of these things are really false arguments. What we are trying to do is to look at the patterns of ownership and to locate locate it within its history, that what we did here is what we call historic injustice. And then we can help address that, and we can address how do we deal yeah. with that uh, uh, land after it has been reclaimed, after mm-hmm. we've normalized our society. At the moment, our society is, is not normal. Then I'm very pleased that uh, uh, Advocate Ngukaitobi has actually tried to deal with uh, or dismiss some of the arguments that had been raised. Mm. For instance, the issue of the urbanization yes. that is rapid. The truth of the matter is, and there's been a lot of investment that seems to suggest that black people are not interested in land. And that is a false argument. And and the people who are saying it are not telling you that uh, they are investing a lot of money and research 
to make sure that the land is not transferred. Mm-hmm. And as uh, the advocate indicates, if it is so unimportant, why are you investing so much money mm-hmm. that there should be no transfer? Mm-hmm. So that's false argument, false threat. Yeah. Then the second false argument is really this one about the economy. Yeah. As it indicated, that the concentration has not led to the fear that there'll be economic collapse. We're already having an economic collapse without any transfer of land. land. Mm. Then the third one that he had raised is that land is totalizing, that when we talk about land, we're talking about the cultural, we're talking about the spiritual, Mm. we're talking about subsistence, we're talking about dwellings, we talk about industry, we talk about subsistence, we talk about agriculture. So there is much more that Mm. African people will use land for. So when we deal with these issues, we need far broader. But then there's this issue that we must also address, which is my study, that given that we have experimented with the reforms that we have, we need to ask, and we have seen that there has not been much movement. We need to ask whether the problem is how we've conceptualized it and also whether it is sharing competence and address it. But what we know now is that it cannot be correct that whenever you find Africans, you find them uh, almost in small spaces squashed yeah. in places when it is in the country of the best. Yeah. It cannot be right. And this is what we need to be dealing with. But then we must be able to dis- dismiss all these false arguments, which are all aimed at sustaining the patterns of inequality when it comes to land. Professor Siepe, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We know that um, you are pressed for time and you've got another uh, appointment. But thank you for sharing your insights with us and we will take the conversation forward with regards to some of the issues you have raised. Thank you very much to Professor Sipo Siepe. Advocate Temega Mugaitobi, the floor is yours. Is it a conceptual problem or is it just incompetence? No, I'm, I'm not sure about even that binary uh, of conceptual and incompetence, whether it actually works. There is a combination of reasons um, why land reform has um, uh, been a disappointment. The one is the, the extent to which the historical problem is entrenched or has been entrenched or was entrenched. I, I don't think that we uh, appreciated the, the extent of the uh, inequality in uh, land um, distribution. Mm-hmm. We spoke about these figures of 13% uh, versus 87%, etc. But the multiple layers sitting on top of that became apparent only after uh, the ANC government took office. Um, one of the things that have been a surprise to me are the different types of land tenure Mm -hmm. and even within each land tenure uh, how multi-layered it is Mm -hmm. so i think there was a problem of the misunderstanding or perhaps misappreciation of the complexity of the problem the second problem as i say it's a complex uh, complexity of issues The, the second problem i think that the Resources of the country were not devoted. Let's be fair about this. The resources of the country were not devoted on resolving the land question after 1994. Mm-hmm. They were devoted on resolving the, the political question, and even the economic question was intended to be resolved 
by creating creating jobs, uh, expanding the uh, schooling system and expanding the social grant system. The political focus on land is a much recent uh, issue, but there hasn't been political focus on land at all. Um, and then you've got the third problem, which is resistance. You know, resistance has been a big problem. Uh, white landowners, okay, let's be fair about this, white landowners have resisted every attempt at meaningful land reform. Now, when I started writing about land reform uh, and speaking publicly about it, uh, that, that was more than 10 years ago, uh, that is more than 10 years, 2007, 2008, during the debate on the first version of the expropriation bill. And if you look at it now with the benefit of hindsight, it was a modest version, but it was seen as a very, very radical piece when we defended the idea that there should be certain circumstances where expropriation takes place uh, with minimal compensation, which is not market-related. Banks made representations in Parliament. The agricultural unions made representations in Parliament where they opposed the bill at root. Wow. So the extent of the resistance has been absolutely astonishing in this country. And, 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 and it's a problem, Lerato, this, because... You know, the two presidents, of the first two presidents, post-apartheid, Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mandela had this idea that if you allow um, uh, reconciliation and you do not focus on retribution and you don't focus on the confiscation of assets accumulated over time, there will be a sort of a generosity that will be returned Mm. in a sense. But the truth of the matter is that, at least on the agricultural side, there has not been a commensurate sort of paying back to say, look, we appreciate the horror of apartheid. We appreciate the horror of colonialism. This is our contribution. And the same thing with the sort of economic landscape that was set by Tabombik, relaxing the exchange control regulations so that, you know, businesses could... uh, de-invest from South Africa and invest in London and Europe and America and elsewhere. Again, on the sort of promise that there would be something in exchange. And those promises just never happened. happened. I have I have two questions before we go to some callers on the line who'd like to engage you. Just to the point um, when you talk about the first incantation of the uh, expropriation uh, bill, we know that there have been three uh, attempts, but it hasn't quite worked out. Uh, they've been deemed unconstitutional or not comprehensive or whatever the, the arguments have been. But where we stand right now regarding the attempt in 2020 is that the expropriation bill proposes just and equitable compensation will go to the expropriation of property for public use or interest. What is meant by this public use or interest? What is this watered-down version? Yes, so so, so, so the starting point of expropriation, just to explain it, is you start from the assumption that land is property that can be privately owned. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a car. Mm-hmm. And uh, if land can be owned privately and the ownership is proven through a title deed, under what circumstances may the state acquire it without your consent? Because if you can own it privately, the only way ownership can be taken away is by consent. Mm-hmm. 
But then it's appreciated that land is such a, an important resource for the sustainability of society that the state should be given certain powers to deprive an owner of ownership and possession despite their lack of consent. And one of those circumstances is expropriation. Now, when will the state be allowed to expropriate in order to avoid arbitrary action? One would be where the state wants to use the property for the broader sort of public goals. So it wants to build a dam for the village, Mm -hmm. or it wants to build a road to be used by everybody, or it wants to build a school for the township. In those circumstances, the law has always appreciated that the state should be allowed to interfere with private ownership because there is a broader public goal. More controversially, in international law and even here, has been, should the state be allowed to take property so that it gives it to a different person? Mm. Which is, it's not going to be used by all of us. It is going to be taken and given to a different person and to be used by that person privately. And in South Africa, we've called this expropriation in the public interest. Uh We've always had this. Uh, Under apartheid, there was expropriation for public purposes. Under the Constitution, it introduced the notion of both public purpose and public interest. So when the state comes along and says, I want to take this farm, I'm going to take it for myself, which is what expropriation is generally used for, but I'll give it to other people to use it privately, but you will have no access to it. Now, that is public interest Interest. expropriations. A lot of people, well, a lot of landowners oppose this. And they oppose it in principle. They have opposed every version of expropriation. Believe this. Every version of the expropriation bill has been opposed by white landowners. Even the current version is still opposed by white landowners. Just check the representations they've made in Parliament. Okay. Second question, and then we're going to the lines. It's, 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 It's a question in two parts. 1994, new government sets a target of redistributing 30% of the 77 million hectares within the first five years. Then the goalposts are shifted and they're shifted and they're shifted. Now we stand at that original 30% to be redistributed by 2030. Um, Are they on track to, um, to achieve these targets and to meet these deadlines? That's the first thing. The second thing is... Those who are opposed to land reform in its current form say the government is also a major landowner. Why doesn't the government redistribute its own land? No, the second argument is, I mean, I think Professor Siepe calls this false argument. The second argument is a total false argument. The uh, government-owned land, if you're talking about government as being provincial and national government, it only owns uh, something like 20 million hectares. And only 2% of those are actually redistributed. redistributed. A lot of them are things like forests. They are not redistributable. You're not going to give a person a forest to live in. So that argument is completely false. It's not backed up by anything. The land that the government reserves for itself is little. If, if you want to do land reform in South Africa, you have to focus on private property. That's the only way you can do land reform, is by focusing on private property. The only question is, how do you focus on private property in a way that is not, um, uh, that does not cause undue hardships yeah. to the beneficiaries of the process? Yeah. But, but it's a false notion to say that let's focus on state ownership, because that's 20 million hectares, okay. and only 2% is redistributable. When you look at the first 
the first issue. This has been revived several times, this target. And it is not going to be met uh, in 2030 for obvious reasons. You cannot keep making a target but not changing the practices and not changing the institutions and not changing the infrastructure for land reform. It is just an empty promise once again. The Constitutional Court gave a judgment in uh, 2019 uh, called Mwelasa. And it found that if you were to look at the old order claims, uh, the claims that were submitted by 1998, which was the first deadline, alone, it's going to take another 100 years to resolve those and settle them. If you included the new order claims, the claims that were included, I think after 2013 when President Zuma opened the, the land claims process, that will take you 718 years wow. on the current trajectory of the government. So, so for the government to keep shifting the goalposts is an unhelpful thing. In fact, if I was giving them advice, I would tell them to stop giving targets. Instead, to focus on changing the infrastructure of land reform. Because that's where most of these problems actually lie. It's, the structures are not working. I mean, this is the problem across South Africa. The institutions are in a state of paralysis. Yeah. Let's take some calls. Malisela and Pretoria, good day. Hi, Laraja, how are you? Fine, thank you. Ndati, go ahead. I'm good. Look, mine is a general comment. I mean, if you look from 1913, when they took the land, they took the land and resourced or supported those guys that uh, were given the land in terms of money, expertise, and they opened the market for them. And the same should be done now. We can't just say we're giving the land to a black person and we don't support them in terms of resources and we don't open a market for them because we are actually leading them to fail. Mm. So that is, that is my, my general comment. Thank Fant- you. Fantastic. Sipo in Johannesburg, good day. Good morning, Rata Tembega. Great uh, uh, views that you are raising. Rata Tembega, I think, on his last book on the land matters, on the future of the of this land reform, he, he did raise three key issues, correcting historical wrongs, confronting persisting inequities of the present, securing an equality-based future. I think that's where the grounding of your talk today says, even if they churches white I mean owners who are actually the not the real owners of the land are the ones who are even blocking development and change and growth into our uh, economy and it's broadly within the uh, uh, African continent and at Tembeka in his first book again he raised an important issue of a member of uh, parliament finally saying without the land the natives are absolutely compelled to starve. Mm. So imagine if during that time even if you are looking at 1913, but Tembeka in his first book, he went further, yeah. deeper in, in 1800s to say how we lost the land. And I think it's, it's correct okay. to be giving those indications to say we, are, we will be taking centuries to can recover okay. from what they have taken. Because land is the people, land is a, a culture, land belongs to the people, Thank not you. to the individual. Thank you, Lara. Thank you, Dr. Sipo. It's going to take a long time to get this done. Tabo and Mamelodi. Hi. Dr. You know, we saw uh, the former 
president at the moment, but but are they given the task of dealing with this land reform? And the very first case that he wanted to deal with was the one of Ngonya Matras in the case at mm. You know, and then he came back because of I think that, that there was a call that was made. So we saw uh, the king, and also people who benefited the of land, like the likes of uh, Lilikota, going to join Afri Forum. Mm. You know against their own people who want to deal with the land issue. So what are we going to do with people of power like uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the king and uh, uh, and then to, to, to uh, again deal with uh, 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 the FS Plus leader okay. who in parliament said that if the land is going to, to be taken without compensation, there's going to be a civil war, okay. right? Yeah. Okay, Tabo, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that. Um, Advocate Ngugai Tobi, some comments there, but two questions basically, which is, you know, the consistency in policy making and the convergence of views of those tasked with addressing the land reform uh, question when they start to sort of be co-opted into one agenda. The second one is, it's fine to redistribute land, but support the new landowners. Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating uh, set of calls. The second one uh, is read, has read my book, so 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 that I'm not I'm not the only one who's read it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you know I'm fascinated about this idea of let's support black farmers and we can't just give them land, etc. For two reasons. The one is that in Fandrebik's a diary. Um, had a, a three-volume diary that he left. But one of the uh, entries he made in um, uh, 1657 was that they gave so there was a bit of a resistance, uh, so-called free beggars. People wanted to, to, to leave the, uh, the company, the Dutch East India Company, and they didn't want to be under its control. So he, he got a deal with them in which he allowed them to be free, and that's why they're called free beggars. Mm-hmm. And he got them land. Basically, that was land uh, taken forcefully from the Khoi Khoi populations around him. And then he got the Khoi Khoi to work for them, effectively in slave laboring conditions. And then he allowed them a market. They could sell their produce to uh, the company itself, and they didn't have to pay tax for the first three years of uh, being productive. And that was the beginning of the agricultural productivity of the Boers. It was direct dispossession, forced labor, an open market, and freedom from taxation. And that was the same thing which happened to the British and the British, there were about 4,600 of them that came to the Eastern Cape and, and settled in Bathurst in um, 1820. And again, these are people that, some of them came from Ireland, and, you know, but they have no agricultural experience to yeah. speak of. So and these are the uh, features of it. And then, of course, it's repeated again in, in 1913. So every society, this is not a black issue, every society mm. that is starting out on an agricultural or agrarian revolution always needs state support. And the problem we've had in relation to this, and if you look at how black agricultural productivity was destroyed, I mean, I made the example initially, how did they choose the native reserves? 
mm-hmm. was observing rain patterns. Where did they get the data from? They got it from black farmers. I mean, mm-hmm. 1910, 1911, 1912 were one of the most high-yield agriculturally productive years for the black farmers. That all productivity was destroyed by the 1913 Native Land Act. So there is no way that you are going to restore this. I mean, the government talks a lot about an agrarian revolution. Mm -hmm, Agrarian revolution in the sky. I have a final question before um, we end our conversation. Obviously, we've continued to link um, the land issue to uh, farming, the agricultural economy, tenure in agricultural lands. What about land as equity this idea that if people have a parcel of land they don't necessarily need to farm it or even build a house it is the collateral they can use in a transaction at a bank for whatever business endeavors and if nothing else that's also why there needs to be a land question even if we're thinking about the modern day economy yes that is true i mean this is a a theory propounded uh, in a book published about 20 years ago by uh, Hernando de Soto, The Mystery of Capital. He was raising the argument in the context of Southern America, specifically Peru, uh, that there is a lot of land available, specifically in formal settlements, but it's dead capital because it's not registered and held in title. And registering it and holding it in title transforms it into productive capital that can be tradable in the market. That was good in theory, but in practice, it was not so. Because what they found, the researchers found when they looked at South Africa in particular, in fact, even in Peru, at South Africa in particular, is that banks tend to focus more on income rather than land. Mm -hmm. So even if you have a thousand cattle, which are property, the banks will not take those into account in assessing your credit worthiness. So which means that the change, and that's one of the arguments I try to make in my book, which means that the change is not to be expected from us, but it is to be expected from the bank side, is that they need, start, they need to start seeing land properly as equity. At the moment, they don't, because their focus is on income. It's regular income that is more decisive in your ability mm-hmm. to repay. That's the bank's policy, and I've made yeah. this, and I haven't seen any of the bankers coming out and say, oh, no, that's wrong, that's not right. what we do. Okay, and then finally, finally, the land bank. You know, there have been calls to, to, to completely sort of transform its composition, how it works, um, yeah, and just get it to, to, to come into the system as a DFI, a development finance institution, in a way in which commercial banks can't do. Let's take away the fact that many state-owned uh, institutions are not working really well. In a utopia, is a land bank the right sort of uh, middle-of-the-road kind of institution to enable land reform? Oh, yes, no doubt. I mean, if you look at how did the white farmers, how did they start to be where they are, especially after 1902, after the so-called Anglo-Boer War, which is really a South African war. How did, this was because they set up the ITC for industry, but they also set up the land bank. And the key behind the land bank was soft loans, giving people loans that they have to repay at very, very convenient terms. Its collapse has also meant that there is no similar institution to support as the bedrock black agricultural 
economic activity on a wide scale. And you know that before the collapse of the land bank, there was a problem already. In 2004, they amended the law. And that's why I try to get people to look at the specifics of the problem. They amended the law to say that the land bank must land on security. Now, you know the, why that is such a problem. You have the land bank as a DFI. Its intention is to stimulate agricultural productivity in a class of persons that are previously marginalized from the economy. Mm -hmm. But they insist on security beforehand. Yeah. And what is security? Security is property. It's yeah. fixed property. But these are people with no fixed property. Yeah. So you always needed to fix the mandate of the land bank, quite apart from fixing its institutional capacity. Advocate Mungai Tobi, there's so much to talk about. We've only scratched the surface of it, but it's been an education. And I thank you so much for coming through. That is uh, Advocate Tembega Ngukai Tobi, a constitutional law expert and author who's written Land Matters, South Africa's Failed Land Reforms and The Road Ahead. I hope it's been food for thought for you too. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.